Whether this is her first Mother's Day or her 40th, she deserves more. Shop tons of stunning on-trend jewelry for every budget at Diamonds Direct. Diamond fashion jewelry, beautiful birthstones, everyday pearls, starting at just $200. Commemorate the real loves of her life with a gorgeous pendant featuring the birthstone of the one who made her mom. This Mother's Day, Diamonds Direct is everything you need to say thank you. Diamonds Direct, your love, our passion. Online at DiamondsDirect.com. The Kakadu Plum is an Australian native superfood containing 100 times more vitamin C than oranges. So why have you never heard of it? PR. No one's drinking a Kakadu smoothie? I'm JB Smooth, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a giggillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit at and slash hypergig with details. This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employer's respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Live Nation presents Concert Week. From now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 summer shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirks Bentley, Janet Jackson, Megan Trainer, Peso Pluma, Sean Paul, Sum 41, and many more. For way less. Grab your tickets now through May 14th to see all of the artists you love all summer long for just $25. $25 each. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert Week to buy now. That's LiveNation.com slash Concert Week to buy now. From UFOs to psychic powers and government conspiracies, history is riddled with unexplained events. You can turn back now or learn the stuff they don't want you to know. A production of iHeartRadio. Hello, welcome back to the show. My name is Matt. My name is Noel. They call me Ben. We're joined, as always, with our super producer, Paul Mission Control Deccans. Most importantly, you are you, you are here, and that makes this the stuff they don't want you to know. Uh, Today, we are diving into a story that must begin with a disclaimer. We are going to explore some disturbing stories, uh, but they are stories we feel are important, uh, even though they may not be appropriate for all listeners today. Uh, That's just something you should know at the top. Uh, We are exploring a very harrowing tale from what is generally called uh, the troubled teen industry. We've discussed this in the past. Uh, Similar to the rehabilitation industry, there are bad actors, there is corruption, there are cover-ups, and there are conspiracies. In this world, we are not exploring today's topic alone. However, we are joined with our good friend, our colleague, uh, the podcaster, the musician, uh, the creator of Camp Hell. Uh, Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Josh Thane. 
I don't know why I said that like we're in a live show, Josh. <laughs> right. I feel like I should be walking out with my uh, coffee mug right now. <sighs> why is it that breathing into a mic sounds like a crowd? It's weird. <sighs> it's true. It's a sussurus. It's a sussurus. <laughs> that was all but, for you, Josh. But yes, Josh, welcome. Uh, full disclosure, everyone. Uh, I am an executive producer who works directly with Josh, and the show we're going to be talking about today is one of the ones that we collectively made but josh is the creator producer host music director and creator uh of this show camp hell and awakey josh could you please introduce yourself uh to everybody here tell us about your background and um just your your history in the true crime space hello everybody uh my name is josh thane as they said and i work in production so i've been working with matt and making some True Crime Podcast for the past few years now, and I also do music. I play in a band, Migrant Worker, shamelessly promoting right now. And yeah, Matt's been, Matt, you're uh, to thank for me uh, following this rabbit hole of the story of Anna Wakey, honestly, and I'm really glad you did, because it's been a wild ride. It's been a long time coming. This is uh, this podcast, which is available now, uh, is something that you have been working on uh, for for quite a while, Josh. From the initial story, and and it's one of those it's one of those stories that that I think is personally fascinating because. At times, it was almost like a regional piece of folklore, even though it was true. The events discussed uh, did occur, are real. Uh, Many, many people, even in our home state of Georgia, were absolutely unaware of the Annie Wakey Treatment Center for Emotionally Disturbed Youth. Could you tell us a little bit about what this uh, institution was and uh, how you personally learned about it, even before before you thought of uh, pursuing this as a show. Sure. Yeah, I had, uh, like many people, never heard of it before at all till about two years ago. I guess it was July of uh, 2019. And we talk about this in the episode, but the Cliff's Notes was basically I was driving road trip in Florida with my wife and her friend, and she knew I'd been working in the true crime field and said, Josh, you need to do a podcast on Anna Wakey. And, you know, what the heck is that? I've never heard that word before. And basically all she knew was that some abuse had gone on at this school for boys in Georgia. And the way that she had found out about it was through a family friend of hers who had adopted a donkey from the school, which is a... uh notorious tale at this point now, but the donkey basically had been abused. They claimed the donkey had been abused as kind of offset aggression from what these kids had been through. So I came back and started looking into it, just curious, and it was odd how little internet presence there was. And the Wikipedia has changed quite a bit since then, but at the time it was like, two paragraphs for this school that was like a $50 million settlement and, you know, all of these charges brought, um, but nothing really online till you start combing through newspapers and that sort of thing. And then it was like the floodgates, like, how have I not heard of this? And then you start asking around and my parents were like, yeah, of course, that broke when you were just being born. So, of course, that hit 
home. And I think, like you said, it was almost like a folklore. And the more and more I looked into this, the more I found out I had these weird connections to this place. Not personally, but uh, for instance, my wife's sister worked at a school that sounded similar. And we eventually put it together. Oh my God, you were working at the place that used to be Anawakey. And that was just chance after working on it for like six months or something. Wow. And then relatives of my wife's live out there and they're, oh yeah, well, we know stories about this guy and the sheriff and the, you know, all these connections that happened out there. So it really was a rabbit hole that just kept going the more you pulled that thread. So so let's let's define what this Anawakey word, this place, what is it? So the Anawakey Treatment Center for Emotionally Disturbed Boys is the original title. And it's hard to say a little bit because it was a little amorphous. They would shift how it was presented through over the years, over like about a little less than three decades, um, to what worked best for them. So at one point in time, it was called a hospital. At another point, it was a school. It started out as a foundation with community outreach and people donating money to it. But basically, it was a wilderness therapy program for emotionally disturbed kids. And it was just vague enough to where they could work government agencies, legal systems, insurance, to whatever would benefit them in the best way. And what, what was the uh, ballpark age range of the, of the children involved here? It could start pretty young. I've talked to people who were sent there when they were nine to age 11, which is insane when you think about the work, some of the forced labor these kids were being forced to do. And it was a type of kind of hierarchy system where people would work through it and would then be promoted to a group leader and then a counselor. So the further it went, the further you could go in the program. And a lot of time, unfortunately, that was tied to different types of sexual abuse that were going on within it. And for a lot of folks in the crowd today, when you hear the phrase wilderness therapy, uh, you, you might associate it with like, Boy Scouts or camping, you know what I mean? It, or having a troubled teens just sort of stroll around and lollygag in the woods. That's very much not the case. Uh, we, we know that wilderness therapy, in the most dry terms, it is uh, behavior modification officially based on group activities. You know, like you said, Josh, there's there people progress through these leadership roles and you are supposed to uh, become more acclimated to working with other people and you are is supposed to help address maybe some of the emotional issues people have had. Uh, but this, although this treatment can be controversial at times, uh, I believe there are examples of wilderness therapy in the modern day. Isn't that correct? Absolutely, yeah. And that's something I had been aware of. I had known friends growing up who had done programs like Knowles is a very popular one. You know, and I think there's a span where it can be you're literally just dropped in the wilderness with a knife and some other few things and, and figured out to these more type camp settings where you have leaders teaching you how to make things and uh, work in the wilderness and the elements. And I think that that has proven to be very successful uh, when done correctly. 
with kids. You know, there's a lot of great programs out there. I'm going to be hopefully speaking with uh, a really great one out of Florida that my friend had been involved with to, you know, kind of show the other side of this can actually work well. Yeah. So I want to give just a quick modern example of wilderness therapy. And then I want to talk about why this would be needed or why wilderness therapy exists, right? What is, what's being treated here? And you mentioned something called emotional behavior disorder, emotional and behavioral disorder. So we'll talk about that. But first of all, this wilderness therapy, it's called First Light Wilderness Therapy. And just I'm going to read you a description from their website. It says that it's a full immersion therapy experience and away from the distractions of everyday life, such as screen time and peers, students have the opportunity to benefit from round the clock therapeutic support. So there's there's a therapeutic support component to this, right? There are others that are going to be assisting in some kind of therapeutic fashion. But the wilderness, it says, uh, the wilderness environment allows students to focus on regulation through attunement with the rhythms of nature, uh, which is really interesting. It says students sleep in individual tents and follow a nomadic model of movement, setting up camp in a new area once or twice each week. So that's a slightly modified version of what Anna Wakey was, but it just gives you an idea of uh, what this is supposed to do. And it says it's for children between the ages of 12 and 18. So my question is to you, Josh, what, what is EBD or emotional behavioral disorder? And what is it like? What, what does that even mean? Emotional behavioral disorder is, and this, this was a very hard thing to define too, because these terms change from legal system to the medical system, the judicial system. Uh, but basically when, how it was described to me was when you look at certain type of behaviors, like say a two-year-old throwing a tantrum and things of that na nature, for that age, that makes sense and that's to be expected. But when these type of behaviors continue on past this into other ages, then you start having an issue and kids that have trouble expressing themselves can't deal with emotions correctly. Um, that's kind of, I guess, the broadest type definition of that. And it's it's uh, highly likely that uh, given the given the time span uh, during which the treatment center operated, there were uh, there were there were uh, doubtlessly attendees that were misdiagnosed. Uh, this sort of this this sort of label can be applied uh, in in a somewhat amorphous way, uh, and this this leads us to. The next question, Josh, um, Annie Wakey, I think, will surprise people. It's quite old, right? Could you could you tell us a little bit about how it came to be uh, and where it's located? Yeah, it actually went on for a surprising number of years. It was uh, started sometime around 1962 in Douglasville, Georgia, uh, and continued through probably close to 1988 before it was officially shut down and, and how it was known. And it expanded through those years. They went on to have three different campuses, one in Florida, another one for girls in Rockmart, Georgia. And by all means, I mean, it seems like they were ready to expand this even further. There was talk of them starting a branch in Mexico. They had bought land in Canada. I mean, it was, this thing was only growing, um, until somebody finally put a stop to it. Something occurs to me, we, we recently did an episode about what I would see as similar 
organizations or institutions that parents essentially pay um, these, I guess, I don't know, organizations to kidnap their kids, to come in the dead of night, take their kids and put them into these kind of reform school type scenarios. Uh, And all of these situations are rife for abuse. There's just so much lack of oversight. The parents are putting all of this trust in these groups, and there is not a lot of licensing oversight, not a lot of... um, requirements even to start one of these in a similar way to some rehab facilities or some like DUI schools, for example, that are subsidized by, you know, the government and people have to use them. Um, I'm wondering if this forced labor situation with Anawaki is in any way similar or if there's a distinction between these two types of sort of forced reform schools for, for kids. Yeah. And we try and follow this through the podcast where it evolved or devolved, if you will, over the years, where, you know, initially, as we were talking about emotionally disturbed behavior, um, you know, this clear definition of this, but it would come to be just kids who had ADD, as simple as that, or, you know, were depressed, things like that, where this is not necessarily the place to handle those types of things. So it did become just a place where, a lot of times parents with money or good insurance could send their kids there. And they stood to make a lot of money doing that. And I think there's a span in these wilderness therapy camps where, yeah, like you said, it can be coming into your house in the middle of the night and grabbing your kids for you and sending them off to somebody voluntarily going or being sent there by court order as a ward of the state. And as Anawaki evolved over the years, it could shift to any one of those things within that spectrum to whatever benefited them the best. It's interesting because you're, you know, you've mentioned that this organization was somewhat of a chameleon, right, in terms of self-serving, self-serving actions. At this point, there are, there are two things that we, we have to address. These are covered in depth in in Camp Hell, uh, Josh, astute listeners of the show today will will notice that you said there were kids who might have ADHD. Uh, there are kids who might have uh, just been going through a very difficult emotional time. Right? It's it's normal to be depressed at times. Uh, there were also children who had uh, had bounced out of other programs. If, if I'm correct here. And one of the things that I'd love for you to give our audience a sense of here is what actually happened to these kids. We've talked about the wilderness therapy, right? We've talked about the stated aims of this and similar other organizations. But what, what actually happened to these children? What made this different from something else in the troubled teen industry? Yeah. And again, like everything, there's not one simple answer for that. There was a spectrum of experiences. And we tried to cover that in the podcast too. Some people left and say that was the best thing that ever happened to me. It made me who I am today. It taught me how to work. It taught me responsibility. But in all honesty, what was going on was forced labor by the kids. They were put through this backbreaking labor, many of them having lifelong medical issues from it, um, basically building the camp, building the campus. They, are, they were being 
they were paying to go to. Um, all three of those campuses were built. There was a marina and hotel for profit built in Florida by the kids. Um, just things of this nature. They were getting free labor. Didn't they, like, build a lake? Yeah, they dug out Anawake Lake, which is still in Douglasville on the map. If you look at a map, you would think Anawake is a town, and for all intents and purposes, it was. And Anawake Lake is still there, right? You take Anawake Road to get there. And it is interesting, the varying perspectives that the folks that, you know, went through this program at varying times, because they were all given numbers, so you can kind of track, like, how long this program ran based on, you know, the the size of the number given to a particular, you know, patient. I think it's interesting that it's called patient, since there's really no medical uh, expertise involved here at all. The guy in charge of it goes by doctor, but he has no you know, degree in medicine at all. It's just no. sort of like a self-proclaimed title, which is always uh, very suspicious to me, very self-aggrandizing to refer to yourself in that way. And he did seem to have this kind of like God complex. But one of the gentlemen you speak to in the first episode speaks very fondly of this guy and speaks very fondly of his experience. He taught him how to work with his hands, taught him how to use tools. Um, and he had a hard time believing some of the allegations um, I just I thought it was really smart and interesting that you led with that. Uh, and then obviously you see the diverging opinions and how, you know, what is the real story? Right. And that's continued to happen since it's come out. And I've had many survivors reach out um, from the gamut of thank you so much. You know, this, I've went into therapy for the first time or. Uh, explain to my parents what I went through for the first time in 30 years to people that had a great experience and are like, why aren't you talking about all the great things? So that's why I thought, you know, let's start out. This wasn't all bad for everybody. And part of that has to do with the selection of kids that did go through some of this abuse. And also that was a, a patient or survivor they choose to go by, um, who attended in some of the earliest years. He was there in like 1962 or 63. So this program devolved in that it got a lot worse over the years. So so who was this doctor that Nola's mentioned there? Yeah, Louis Jerome Doc Petter. He um, went way further back in Georgia history than I realized. I found out that he had been in the papers since the 1940s. Uh, but he started Anawake with him and his wife, Mabel, and another guy named Brett Baxley, who's kind of a mysterious figure. Um, but Doc Petter has had a history of working in government agencies, working in the Fulton County court system as a, a probation officer and court psychologist, working in Savannah with DFACS, Department of Family and Children's Services, and just a charismatic character that was great at... Uh, community outreach and getting funds for people to help troubled kids. And so I found out through going through his background, you see this progression from Boy Scout leader to, you know, church pastor to he's, there's this article in the Atlanta paper, I couldn't believe from the 50s, where it's, you know, the key club of Atlanta raises money to help troubled youth. And even back then, he's having this community raise funds for this troubled kid. And it was like a lot of money, like every member giving $100 a month. When you think that, add that up in the 1950s, like 150 people or something like that. And then like three years later, it's like, 
kid turned his life around success thanks to Lewis Petter and this organization. So it just continued from there. And he was able to keep doing community outreach and getting funds to where he bought this land to create Anawaki. Do you believe that it would be fair to say Dr. Petter uh, is a predator or was a predator at the time? Without a doubt. Absolutely. I've heard many personal testimonies from people. This guy created this whole atmosphere. It wasn't just him abusing and preying on these kids. He taught it to other people. He encouraged it to go on at the camp to the point of, of having his own group of inner circle. They called it a, of boys who, who rotated over decades and they would live in his house with him and his family. This is going on right under their nose. Um, so, yeah, he was about, about as evil as you could get, in my mind. How did the story start to get out? Was it just a couple of patients that started telling, you know, an authority figure, telling a parent or something? Like how, how did people find out about it? The most surprising thing when I first looked into this was that jumped out to me was in 1970, there was a hearing for abuse going on at the camp. Uh, it wasn't a criminal investigation at all. It was a hearing regarding their license as a, um, I'm trying to remember how they were described at the time because it changed so many times over the years, as a child caring institution. It had, simply had to do with their license and as the head of it, if Lewis Petter was fit to head a child caring institution. So back at this point, you have people giving firsthand testimony of sexual abuse um, by this guy, recorded in court transcript, in the public accounts, and nothing happened. In short, the place continued on. Um, they were granted their license. There was a disclaimer that, that Lewis Petter could not interact with the boys. What that basically diluted down to from then on was he couldn't go into their sleeping quarters but still had his office on campus, was still there, was still interacting with them, taking them on trips, still having them stay in his house. And uh, the same organization that oversaw that hearing um, turned out to have a lot of connections with Lewis Petter. I can't say the organization. I'd say the person who was in charge of the organization turned out to have a very close tie to Lewis Petter, which, uh, led, which led to nothing happening for, it went on for another 25 years. And I believe that initial investigation in the 70s, Josh, wasn't made public, was it? No, not at all. It was very kept under wraps. Uh, we actually have a story with the one of the whistleblowers, Robert D'Agostino, who was great. Um, he was threatened. He was uh, about to take the—he had just taken the bar at that point, a young attorney, and somebody tipped him off and said, hey— they're going, they're about to seal this document. You need to get down here and get a copy of this court transcript. And that will give you leverage because they're going to go after you and make sure you don't pass the bar. You can't practice as an attorney. And that's what he did. And he held on to those transcripts all those years and provided them to me, thankfully. Wait, who, who was going to go after him? Uh, Anna Wakey in some way. I mean, they were um, going to try and stop him from being able to be a practicing attorney. So that was his his uh, kind of saving grace to hold on to that court transcript, which he did. And we'll pause for a word from our sponsor before returning 
with Josh Thane and Campbell and Awakey. Live Nation presents Concert Week. From now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 summer shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirks Bentley, Janet Jackson, Megan Trainer, Peso Pluma, Sean Paul, Sum 41, and many more. For way less. Grab your tickets now through May 14th to see all of the artists you love all summer long. For just $25. $25 each. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert Week to buy now. That's LiveNation.com slash Concert Week to buy now. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house. And I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast from Ruby Studio in partnership with Intel. Explore the future of technology that's rapidly evolving our world today with the help of AI. There's still so much work and research needed to fully understand the power and potential of AI. And Intel is at the forefront of implementing AI and revolutionary technology that's changing the world we live in for the better. In each episode, Graham interviews the minds transforming medicine and healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more while pioneering new uses for AI in these spaces. So tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snag a Job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, tempt to hire part-time or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snag a Job's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. And we're back. And now we're starting to unravel some of the timeline here. Uh, For context, folks, uh, this is a profoundly disturbing example of something that happens uh, more often than you might think. You know, you'll you'll hear news about uh, a scandal that rocks a Boy Scout troop or something like that. And uh, we've got a lot of uh, former scouts in the audience today. I myself am an Eagle Scout. There's Matt right there. 
you know, we it, it's cool to be in wilderness, to build bridges. To I, I am going to say that making a fire from the like ordinary means with the stick and the and the rubby thing that stinks. Just bring a lighter. That's not worth it. But also digging an entire lake is probably not that right. fun. That's true. <laughs> and also, fun fact: uh, a lot of people don't know this. Georgia has no natural lakes. Every lake in Georgia has been man-made. But the the reason I'm bringing this up is that we see in tragic tales such as this, we see some common tropes, and they should trouble you folks. One of the common tropes that uh, Josh, you just hit upon, is that people knew. Someone knew. And uh, whether it's through incompetence or self-interest, or just plain old bribery. Uh, they let this stuff continue, or they perhaps deluded themselves uh, into saying, well, who who can trust these kids, right? Who knows? They may be making something up, et cetera, et cetera. But as you and Matt pointed out, again, that's what kills me about this. This was in the news, and I don't know how... I think it wasn't quite public knowledge yet, right? That's that's maybe a, a we have to fast forward a decade to the eighties. Yeah, yeah. Okay. What, how how did this break out? What happened? Well, so this goes on. The hearing happens, and for another twenty five years, the program gets worse. More kids are subjected to this abuse. It just spreads, and sometime around the mid eighties, the organization starts to crumble a little bit. Um, People are finding out these uh, awful events are happening around it. One kid committed suicide and jumped off a roof there. Another one escaped and stole a gun from, I forget how he got the gun, but he ended up murdering somebody uh, who was staying there. So, like, these things start happening and start growing more attention to it. Um, the behavior is getting more outlandish. They're caring less and less of the fact that they might get caught. And eventually it breaks in the mid-80s. And then once that happened, somebody broke the story. Actually, I think it was Albert Edgen, the journalist we speak to in the podcast, uh, who was extremely helpful, um, that this hearing had happened in the 1970s, and it went unnoticed. So really, that did not even come to light till the whole thing had been broken open by the mid-80s. Wow. I, I want to... Um jump off something you said, Ben, which I think this is really important for this story and probably for right, yeah, definitely for right now in the modern era, the stigma that comes with being diagnosed with something, at least in Georgia, that would be described as emotional and behavior disorder or even ADD or a troubled kid or a an adolescent that um, is for some reason or another not performing the way... Uh, the way that society would wish they would, um, or, you know, a parent or a teacher or anyone really, um, there's a stigma that comes with that, that no matter how trustworthy or not that child is, the statement maybe of that child is going to be, if it's weighed against a doctor or the leader of a program or, you know, an adult, it's not going to hold as much weight, which is, which is a real issue. I think it must've been tough going up against essentially institutions and government structures like that to advocate for these kids who, who were in real trouble when they were at Anawaki 
You said that um, there was D'Agostino who's a whistleblower. There's some uh, a journalist you talked to. Can you tell us more about that journalist and maybe the journey that that journalist took to uncover some of this? Right. Yeah. I, I didn't realize how big a part of his journey it was until I spoke with him. Uh, Albert Edgen was a reporter in Tallahassee for the Tallahassee Democrat uh, in the early 80s. And they had been tipped off to this story that there were some accusations at Anawake's second campus in Caribou, Florida, near Tallahassee. And he covered the story for like six years, ultimately leading to 60 Minutes doing a story on it. And they recruited him to help coach uh, the anchor who interviewed uh, Jim Parham, one of the uh, Petters confidants who had covered for them for many years. And that led to him working with 60 Minutes for another many years. So Anna Wakey really kind of brought him into the mainstream in his journalism career. And uh, we flew up to Virginia to Albert's home uh, right at the start of quarantine, actually. It was the weekend before quarantine lockdown started. So I remember at the time it was like, are we going to do this? Are we going to get on this flight and go bring this suitcase of documents back with us or not? And we did, thankfully. And um, I'm sitting here in my room covered in file folders and documents. I mean, he had kept everything from his research. And uh, I think at the time, he probably wasn't even able to cover as much of that, which is why... um, it's uh, been done so well to cover it in the podcast form because there is just so many tentacles to this thing. And uh, we do want to point out that we've, we've talked extensively off air in the past about how best to address subjects that, you know, many people would rather not hear about, you know, especially if they've survived trauma of their own. Uh, but we, we feel that this information is both important and empowering. And I think one of the most profound things to me about your work on Camp Hell is the, uh, first I would say the, the empathy with which people involved are treated. And secondly, the way this story, very unfortunately, moves through time. When, when you had that moment Josh, when you kind of could see the forest of the problems of Anne and Wakey and could see the timeline, uh, where did you, you know, as Noel said, you start with uh, something that is not immediately, you know, super heavy, right? Um, And you want to illustrate that not everybody had the same experience, but where do you see the story going? You know, as now that you know what you know, and now that you have this research, you have this documentation. Yeah, I think a lot of what I was asked by people who may have been involved who didn't want to speak with me is, why are you telling this story now? Why are you digging this up? And the answer is so that it doesn't happen again, because this type of thing still happens. These organizations are still out there. In fact, there's a whole industry, I would say, of emotional growth schools, as they're called, and wilderness therapy schools. And not all of them are doing good. And some these types of things still happen. And there's not really 
any huge oversight. Um, I've heard recently of a bill trying to be passed. I think Paris Hilton may have been involved with it because she was sent to a school similar to this. She has a documentary out recently about it. Well, that was um, an unexpected cameo. It okay. is, right, yeah. Um, I was surprised, too, that that happened just by chance around the same time of this. But basically a bill to give national oversight to organizations like this. And there's not one. And in my research going through this, you see how easy it was for this type of behavior to keep going on. They were just so tied into the system. It was too big. It was described by a few people as the state of Georgia needed this program more than to break it up because of a few bad apples. And and hopefully parents think twice about this or look into it. If you're being told that you can't have contact with your child, that we're going to screen any contact. That's like red flag immediately right there. Um, things of that nature. So why do we cover these stories like this so it doesn't happen again, basically? We do this all the time on the show, a little bit of a caveat. Just I want to make sure that everyone listening knows there are thousands of individuals and probably dozens if not hundreds of organizations out there right now doing their level best to help kids who are, you know, in some way having trouble, right? Um, and wilderness therapy, as my wife can attest, wilderness therapy can be hugely beneficial for for a child who's just having trouble dealing with the way society wants them to to behave. It doesn't mean this is happening everywhere. It does mean that, it, that the bad things are happening and peppered throughout the systems. Um, and I, th I think that is why your work is so important here, Josh. Thanks. No, I think you're right, Matt. And as I said, you know, I, I hope to, by the time this project is done, to show some examples of how some good programs like that, like they aren't all like this. This can work. This idea is actually a good one. It was just abused in the worst possible way. Yeah, by opportunists and predators. Yeah, you know, you're raising an incredibly poignant and powerful point. And it's one we need to emphasize. We talked about this in our exploration of big rehab and uh, the so-called sober living homes. Uh, again, like Matt said, like you said, Josh, there are many people who are doing their level best, not for money, not for power or fame. They genuinely want to help people. This is not a story about those actors. Um, this is the point you hit, the one we always need to emphasize. There is no federal oversight. The laws are state by state, meaning that in the right state, we could all get together, buy some land somewhere, call ourselves doctors. I love it when people do that, <laughs> you know, like whenever you it happens in uh, it happens in other institutions as well. You know, there are a lot of people who just decide to call themselves bishops. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> I, I know I've got something in my car that says I can or I'm ordained in some way because I paid some money. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> are you uh, are you uh, ministers? That's right. We don't talk about on air too much, but Matt and I are both technically ministers. Uni so. Universal Life Church, maybe? Is that what it's called? <laughs> I don't remember. How, <laughs> uh, how could you forget? Look, I've got my cards. One of my I, favorites yeah, was Robert yeah. Anton Wilson. You are now a pope. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yeah. And also, uh, we can, you know, uh, just to be clear, folks, 
we can marry you, but we cannot divorce you. Turns out you do have to have some more qualifications to divorce people. But if you it's, want to the, make, it's the paperwork. It's the paperwork, really. But why is this important? Why is it crucial that there be some sort of oversight? Josh, from the story of Camp Help, which is ongoing, uh, and Matt and Noel and I have listened to it, it becomes quickly obvious that there were secrets, right? There were conspiracies and cover-ups, and there was doubtlessly corruption afoot. Uh, when you say that we're, you know, we're exploring this show together to prevent something like this from happening in the future, has anyone reached out to you with uh, similar experiences or what, what, what are some of the reactions you've received? Because you said someone was just texting you earlier. Yeah, like, yeah. No, the well, first off, the survivors, the people that attended have been hugely important to being able to make this, being able to get an idea of actually what went on. Because obviously with something like this, the people that worked there or were involved do not want to talk about it. A lot of the survivors, luckily, over time, were willing to come and speak with me and tell me about their experience. And since then, I've had survivors I didn't talk to reach out saying, thank you for covering this. You know, this has been hugely cathartic for me and led to getting some therapy. Or somebody else said they finally were able to talk to their parents about it who had never told them this. A lot of them felt guilt didn't want their parents to feel guilt, so they never opened up about the abuse they experienced there. And on top of the survivors, I've had a few people reach out with similar stories saying, please look into this. Um, one that just seemed like this huge summer camp that like 20,000 kids get sent to every year uh, that had largely been... Uh, NDAs and things like that where people by contract cannot speak about. Um, you know, there was another organization in Florida that went on for like over a hundred years to the point where they had found um, unmarked graves there. And just in the past few years, Florida had paid out some so many millions of dollars to families where they found their relatives had died at this place and never been reported. That's obviously like the most extreme example I've ever heard of. But there are places that are still out there today where this is happening. Um, I can't say to the extent that Anawaki was, but there are still not good places. And with that, we're going to take a quick break, but we'll be right back with more discussion with Josh Thane. Live Nation presents Concert Week. From now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 summer shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirks Bentley, Janet Jackson, Megan Trainer, Peso Pluma, Sean Paul, Sum 41, and many more. For way less. Grab your tickets now through May 14th to see all of the artists you love all summer long. For just $25. $25 each. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert Week to buy now. That's LiveNation.com slash Concert Week to buy now. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. 
Follow the global story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts season two of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast from Ruby Studio in partnership with Intel. Explore the future of technology that's rapidly evolving our world today with the help of AI. There's still so much work and research needed to fully understand the power and potential of AI. And Intel is at the forefront of implementing AI and revolutionary technology that's changing the world we live in for the better. In each episode, Graham interviews the minds transforming medicine and healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more while pioneering new uses for AI in these spaces. So tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snag a Job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, tempt to hire part-time or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snag a Job's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. And we return to our discussion with Josh. So you talked about you just mentioned Florida again and you early early in, in this discussion you mentioned that there were campuses in Florida a couple places in Georgia and then uh possibly in Mexico and Canada can you can you talk a little bit about the maybe the money behind the organizations yeah. and it seems it strikes me that if you've got essentially free labor or labor that's paying you Right. To do for the, you know, for the opportunity to do the hard labor for your organization, it feels like you could make a lot of money. And I'm just wondering, like, what was the money situation like with Anna Wakey and what was the property situation like? The property was massive. Um, I was in the town of Douglasville. I can't, I'd have to check the exact square footage, but they kept buying land around there. And I mean, that town of Douglasville was in Awakey for some years. As I said before, Lewis Petter was great at community outreach. So he had this board of the directors of important people in the community who were also some very wealthy who were giving a lot of money to this organization. Once they finally were able to get a medical license, at that point, you're talking insurance premiums. So then you can make the price whatever you want. And if they the kids have good insurance or their families do, then they're going to pay it. So this just expanded over years uh, to where, as I said, they, they built a second campus in Florida in this uh, little town of Carabel, right on the Gulf, this big marina town and, you know, really good real estate to own, uh, you know, not far from Panama City Beach. And 
then they built a women's campus in Rock Mart. And they had, by the time everything shook out legally in the 80s, it was found that they had property in Mexico. They had property in Canada. And in a really smart way, this guy, Louis Petter, built up a second corporation called Anawaki Estates. And he put his three daughters, uh, Marsha, Rita, and Dana, as the head of it. Um, the land owned by Anawaki Estates was then being rented to the Anawaki Foundation. So basically, they're taking the money from insurance and then putting it back in their own pocket through this other corporation. So Anawaki's paying rent for the property that it sits on to Anawaki Estates, who are the Petter family. So basically, they, they were able to make millions. And then you hear all these other stories about bringing jewels and gifts from, you know, very wealthy families in Mexico, sneaking them back over the border. And even uh, I had heard a story, Louis Petter had a fake leg that uh, he, what? Had, he would, yeah, he had a wooden leg and that he would even hide jewels from these wealthy families in Mexico uh, in his leg to bring over the border. And at some point, he actually had to give up like $30,000 worth of jewelry to the county of Douglasville. So, yeah, there's a lot of money tied into this place. I, I just can't I can't tell if that's fraud. I don't know legally if that is fraud to like own the organ, own the company that then your nonprofit or your medical, whatever it is, pays yeah, rent there, to. There was definitely some shady financial stuff going on. And that was kind of the start of the end. Um, you know, like first off, they were calling themselves a nonprofit organization on top of all this, which they were absolutely profiting. And they were also tax exempt. So when you start messing with taxes, the insurance companies start, you know, questioning what's really going on here. What type of treatment is happening? Are we really, uh, should we really be paying you this? That's when things kind of got a little weird. And there were a few kind of mysterious deaths that happened around that time. One of them was the accountant for the place. And so when things get weird with the money, people start infighting. That was kind of what led to finally um, some some cracks and cracks in the foundation uh, for law enforcement to get involved. You know, I've I've heard a a rumor that I think we talked about a long time ago in discussion of this, there's a rumor about where all that money that was made kind of went. We can't say the name of the organization, but there's a very large, powerful educational organization in Georgia um, that has, is a very close relation to the Petter family, was a part of the Petter, Petter family and began around the time that Anawaki was broken up. So where all that money from Anawaki ended up at, we know some of it went to Douglasville, but uh, questionable. Some, some was paid to, to victims and families, right? Yes. Through some. the settlement? I would yeah. say more was paid to attorneys, but some were paid out in a settlement, in a class action lawsuit. But yeah, this, uh, this large educational organization Started around the same time, so it's questionable where some of that seed money may have come from. And we and it's a being, rumor. Yeah, we Just are a rumor. being careful on purpose, folks. But this is uh, this this is the stuff I love, Josh. This is the we we're getting to the part of the story 
where we all realize that this is ongoing. You know, history is very much with us. Faulkner is correct. Uh, this is not a dusty, a, a dusty story from an outdated history book. Uh, the people who survived this are alive. And, you know, as we said, Camp Hell is ongoing right now. Uh, there are some spoilers that Matt, Noel, and I don't know. We're right there with you, folks. Uh, we we can ask Josh stuff and he'll tell us, you know, sorry, you know, wait for episode, uh, you know, eight or something like that. So we're on this journey with you. Um, Josh, I have to ask because it's killing me. I think it's something that uh, is on the mind of a lot of our folks in the audience today. Is Dr. Petter alive? No. He lived to be the ripe old age of 92. Wow. And... Yeah, I mean, spoiler alert or not, um, you can find out. But case in point, he lived much longer than, let's say, the authorities thought he would. And largely lived out the rest of his life okay with him and his wife and a couple German Wait, shepherds. So he, but he was found guilty of some of these things? There was a settlement reached. A deal was made. Oh my gosh, the mystery. To give you a sense of the stakes here, we do have to be careful with language when we say things like there was a settlement reached. There was, absolutely. I mean, that's that's known public document. Um, you know, and, and I spoke with the DA and extensively about this, which we'll get into in some of these later episodes. And by all purposes, it sounded by speak to in speaking with him that this was extremely difficult to take this place down. It was so entrenched in local government and education and all of these things that they had to do whatever they could to just break up this organization, break up the money, make sure that it couldn't keep going on. And, you know, unfortunately, when that happens sometimes... A lot of people get off still. Some people never get charged. Um, the second campus in Florida, nothing happened. Nobody was charged down there at all. And that's what's really heartbreaking when you get to the truth of this stuff, that there was no unsoiled justice for these people. Every step of the way, there was always a an asterisk when something seemed to be getting done about it. And this makes it a genuine conspiracy at times, right? When we know that when um, when you get down into the local level of a lot of uh, a lot of communities, the governments, the authorities are, you know, human, easily corruptible. There's still people that live in a in a relatively small sphere, right? Of of familiar contacts. We all go to the key club or the lions club or whatever so i can help you take the heat off etc do you think that the average resident of douglasville is aware of anawiki at this point or is it just like a weird series of names on streets yeah it's funny uh how you talked about the folklore of it uh since then in speaking with people or people reaching out to me through the Instagram page or writing reviews of the podcast, people would say things like, 
gosh, I didn't think this was real. We heard stories or, you know, I used to live by there. I had no clue this thing went on from people having completely no idea to, gosh, we always heard stories or like, uh, one of my wife's relatives said something like, oh yeah, I remember people when we were kids, they'd be like, I'm going to send you to Anawakey if you act up, things like that. You know what I mean? Where it's just kind of known, but not really the extent. And, um, Even today, though, a lot of younger people have no clue what went on. When I went to Florida, and Carabelle is a town with literally no stoplight, to give you an idea of the size of it. Very small. Um, And even then, with this happening, I mean, 35, 40 years ago now, had most of the town had no clue about it, unless they were there at the time. And if they weren't, it's like it was just completely erased off the history books. And as you said, with authorities being involved, I mean, that was another factor that led to it finally being broken up was a change of sheriff in Douglasville. Um, For years, there was this guy, Sheriff Abercrombie, who he had a horse farm and they'd go do uh, horse lessons over at the sheriff's house or go work on his house. And finally, that shifted to this really controversial figure, Sheriff Earl Lee, who was kind of a badass up in those parts, apparently. And um, he was the one that finally, you know, had been hearing things and decided to try and do something about it. So yeah, definitely lots of people that were aware of this. And we found out later too that Lewis Petter had been ousted from um, DFACS in Savannah for doing questionable things with kids and somehow kept weaving his way through government bodies after that. You know, that was that was a really disturbing early part of the podcast, uh, hearing about the, the details of that. And I kind of don't even want to go into them right now about what he was doing with those uh, kids. But um, it's worth listening to an episode to hear it if you're interested. But it, it is... Uh, well, it's just mind-blowing to me that, that people working in these organizations were like, you know, that there are these, like, I don't want to say wives' tales because they were true, but that, like, these rumors of, of this awful behavior going on about a guy, and, like, nobody called the cops. It was just like, oh, yeah, he, he left because he was doing this thing. Yeah, and again, it's unfortunately a, a pattern that we see all too often. People navigating through these uh, Byzantine layers of power and bureaucracy to isolate uh, their victims, right? This is purposeful. Dr. Absolutely. was not improvising. Yeah, No, and he was a master of what you just described, for sure. Like you said, everyone describes him as one of the most charismatic people that they've encountered. So, like, on the surface, he was just, he was operating at that level. And at this point, folks, to be absolutely transparent with you, this This story is not a story that Matt, Noel, and I tell. Uh, And this is is a story that, Josh, you have uncovered. And I would say you are telling the story collectively, right, with the survivors, with the DAs, with with the people who were working to bring it to light. Uh, the story is ongoing. Camp Hell and Awakey is available now wherever you find your podcast. And it is also, as we said at the top, in our opinion, uh, an incredibly crucial story right now. 
because these things are ongoing. Josh, I would, uh, I'd like to first thank you for being so generous with your time today, man. But secondly, where can people learn more? Where, where would you direct them? Yes, we actually uh, did a really great interview with the head of the National Center for Child Advocacy. And I, we have released that as a full bonus episode, if you want to check it out, his name's Chris Newland, and he really breaks a lot of this stuff down. Things to look for, um, how they work with all the different types of organizations, multidisciplinary, such as law enforcement, the judicial system, educators, social workers, which you really have to do in these types of things because that's how things get covered up, and that's how they go on for years, is not checking across the board. Another website that he recommended to me to check out is the Darkness to Light website. And that has a great, a lot of resources if you're concerned about something, if you want to know what to look for, um, or just need to know where to go to report something. So Darkness to Light, that website. And that's D2, the number two, L.org. Correct. Yeah. Uh, thank you guys so much for having me on. I uh, really appreciate y'all letting me speak about it. Yeah. Thanks for covering the story, man. I'm, uh, I'm glad it's finally like happening. It's crazy to think that it's happening after, you know, just from a quick little, Hey, um, right. little conversation in a car to, Hey, I'm thinking about this story to now you're, yeah. good, I think you're like eight or nine episodes in when this episode comes out. So yeah. Yeah. About two years in the works. And, uh, again, thank you, Matt, for pushing me to keep pulling that thread which we still are. Yeah, I also, just on a personal level, peek behind the curtain, pre-pandemic, uh, Josh and I were work neighbors. Uh, <laughs> and I yep. still remember your very weird first day, my friend. But, uh, <laughs> yes. <laughs> but, um, but... Uh, Did you hear a lot of like, what? Yeah. Coming from his desk? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a lot of uh, a lot of surprise on my first yeah. day. That's another story. <laughs> that's another story, but I do, I do want to uh, just check in and say you know, uh, hope you are doing well because these things can wear on you, you know? Uh, so as you, as you said earlier, for anyone who feels like they are struggling either with something that happened in the past, something that is ongoing, uh, do know you are not alone. There are resources available and stories like this are important for exactly the same for exactly the reason Josh said earlier when we are empowered with knowledge we have the ability we cannot change the past of course but we do have the ability to work toward a, a better future hopefully and that is a much needed i think a uh, positive note in in the world we live in today uh, we want to hear your experiences uh, check out Camp Hell and Awakey. Uh, you will be able to find uh, resources online. Uh, there is a Facebook page as well, is there not, Josh? Yes, it's actually a podcast discussion group uh, my wife created, and it has been amazing to see the feedback on that. Um, so many survivors have now become a part of it. They have their own Anawaki Survivor Facebook page, but they've also come and to give insight into things we talk about on the podcast or people that have spoken on it. And very interesting to just see the back and forth of what people remember or 
posting old pictures of the campus and, and their experiences. And there's really a whole community of the people. I mean, thousands of kids went through this place and a lot of the survivors still keep in touch. And, uh, most, mostly all of them have been very supportive of it. So check out the uh, Camp Hell and Wakey podcast discussion Facebook group. And we also have an Instagram page, Camp Hell Pod on Instagram, with uh, just more pictures of, of things that I've seen and uh, people involved and that type of thing. And you can also, while you're online, uh, drop by and visit uh, Matt Knoll and myself. We're Conspiracy Stuff, Conspiracy Stuff Show, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, all the hits. Check out our YouTube channel, uh, which is also Conspiracy Stuff. Uh, and if you are not the type of person to sip on the social meads, but you have a story to tell, then never fear. We have many other ways you can contact us. One of our favorite is our phone number, isn't it, Matt? That's right. We have a phone number. It is one stdwytk And when you call, please tell us the name you would like for us to refer to you as. It doesn't have to be a real name. It could be a really cool nickname. Like or a Snake sequ- Bite. Oh, code names. Yes. Uh, and then uh, just leave us your message. Then anything you want to say personally to us, please leave it at the end. It's just easier for us to keep the important part right in the front. We can put it on the air. Oh, also, let us know if we can use your message on air. That's important just for legal reasons. Our lawyers appreciate it, and so do we. And we ask that you only call once if you can. If you've got a lot to say, we recommend you use our good old-fashioned email address, where we are. Conspiracy at iHeartRadio.com Stuff They Don't Want You to Know is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow the global story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Top Thrill 2 is like no other course. Two 420-foot vertical speedways, three launches. All right, let's talk strategy. Copy that, driver. Go for maximum acceleration off the start. Measure that. You've got a short straightaway to push from 0 to 74 on the first vertical speedway. And what about the rollback? Rollback will set you up for an explosive reverse climb 420 feet in the sky so you reach 0 Gs in total weightlessness. 420 feet of straight-up speed. Let's get it. Top Thrill 2, the world's tallest and fastest triple-launch Stratocoaster. Get your tickets at cedarpoint.com. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks. Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited time 2% cash back on purchases and pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. 
Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home.